This is the World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. I wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world. You can learn more about them and register for them via our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. So here we are today with this week's guest, Yuta Tobias Mortlock uh, from City University. Yuta, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Um, can we start just by asking you to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your background? Mm, um, I have to get this one in. It's such a joy to be with you. It's always a joy to be with you and James. So this is a special treat. Um, and hey, thanks for having me. Um, about me, I had a real job for the first decade of my academic, of my not academic, look how I'm saying I'm an academic. Um, I had a real job in a real organization. I was a, an IT consultant for a decade and realized that working with people is really exciting for me. Um, solving problems is really satisfying and that people issues are the hard stuff, not the soft stuff. And so I went back to school after a decade of working in IT and management, and I now call myself a social psychologist, and I work for an academic institution, and I'm officially an academic, which I suppose switches many people's ears off immediately. But my quest is to help people at work be and do well. It's the intersection of well-being and performance, and that's what I think is exciting, and dare I say sexy? Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> You're totally allowed to say stuff like that here, Yes. We are, um, as you know, Yuta, we love geeking out on anything like this. So for us, it is sexy, even if it's not for everyone else. Um, so loosely, the topics we're talking about today are mindfulness and leadership, which I know is, uh, is covers some of the areas of your research uh, as an academic. Um, could you start maybe by just telling the audience a little bit about what you mean by mindfulness and what you mean by leadership? Uh, so many people understand mindfulness as... Um, the definition that John Kabat-Zinn uh, had spawned in the early 90s, um, which is all about paying attention in the moment on purpose. And that's a really nice definition for getting into mindfulness. In organizations, mindfulness is a bit more. Mindfulness in organizations is both about individuals paying attention in the moment on purpose, but it's also about um, whole teams or maybe even the organization itself being mindful and that's all about managing stress but managing stress both individually and managing stress collectively so for me mindfulness is more than individual things that I personally can do and its potential is to bring healing to organization and to actually help uh, the whole organization manage difficulty more effectively, and have everybody be responsible for managing stress and challenges, not just you or I individually having to cope with it by ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. Thanks for sharing that. And when we talk about, I guess, leaders and leadership, what do we mean by that? What, what Are you thinking in the broadest sense of people's roles and abilities to lead, or are you thinking mm -hmm. more in terms of the people who run the organization from, from a managerial point of view? Mm -hmm. um, so leadership is really fascinating because um, I would say in the last 20 years or so, those of us who study and watch and um, research leadership have seen a significant shift um, 
in how we understand leadership. So we don't understand leadership as uh, a trait or something that a person has and is endowed with and, you know, and it's stuck and it stays with them independent of whatever context they're in. And I suppose anybody who's a leader in an organization that has children or siblings at home knows that their authority as a leader is not always accepted. And so leadership is is at once a property that shape shifts and it and you or I might have it in this conversation in different uh, at different points but it's also something that we collectively could build and grow and nowadays we believe that leadership as a property of a group or an organization is more powerful than us thinking that leadership belongs to a person by themselves and so that's i think again where the power lies the the potential of leadership is to empower all of us and and see the interdependencies between us and that's what makes leadership powerful which is i think what people listeners will recognize much more than any one person so i think that like when i think about the organizations certainly i've worked in yeah okay there's been there's been an organogram and there's been someone at the top and there's been but even that person at the top is is answerable to a board or to shareholders and it's more complicated but who drives that organization at different points who mm-hmm is, I don't know, I guess I always think about it in sports terms. You know me, Uta, I've, I'm immersed in sports world. So I always think about it as like, in some senses, like a peloton in cycling, like people mm-hmm. take the reins at different points and different people pick up different responsibilities to shape direction and support and keep people together. Does that make sense? Is that, is that what you mean a little bit when you talk about leadership? That is so fascinating that you, that you talk about leadership being a peloton, because this is why I'm studying both mindfulness and leadership together, because um, it's not as well known uh, as you know John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness of stress redu- reduction, but mindfulness in organizations for the last 30 years has been understood as collective stress management capability. And so when it started, when, when researchers started to realize that organizations that manage stress well collectively are a little bit like a flock of birds, And this is what my image is a flock of birds, but that's your image of the peloton. And so literally since the early 90s, we've got reams of valid and reliable evidence that says when an organization has individuals that are interdependent, where individual action is coordinated by constantly checking whether my goal is in line with the overall goal of the group and where I adjust my individual actions to fall in line with where the flock of birds or where your peloton is going, that's when performance can become more reliable. And that's really sexy because it's not just about individuals not being left out by themselves to perform and manage and be strong, but actually it the power of um, a group being interdependent makes that, that group um, perform more reliably, especially during stressful um, and unexpected challenges. And we now live in this world of not only unexpected challenges, like what we've seen in the last few years, but we also live in an increasing um, world of interdependence, where actions that are happening, you know, five countries further currently are absolutely going to impact you and me here in this country that where we're living in. So that's really fascinating to me. And so both mindfulness and leadership really overlap because we're increasingly realizing that both are collective or social ideas, you know, things that are in the space between me and you, me and you. 
And I think that gives us a lot of hope. Um, I do love talking to you, so you always manage to bring it around to a really positive stance as well, which is such a joy. Um, so I think what you're talking about really, so flock of birds, peloton, all these different yeah. ideas yeah. of groupings, right? I love because all of them have, and I'm going to, I'm not, as you know, my colourful, colourfulness of language is not, is not great. I'm not the most creative English writer, but um, there is something um, almost, uh, I don't know, supple about the image of both a flock of birds and a peloton like they mm -hmm. they flow it's not it's not jagged edges it's not turns and corners and I think when we think about agility and, and particularly agile organizations in the grander scheme of things so rather than any specific methodology the ability to um for all of us to flex and meet the needs I keep coming back to the word like reflexive or the words reflexive and responsive so where people can be and I've never really linked the two until you've just said that but I've, uh, as in never really linked mindfulness and, and reflexive response. But what we're really talking about is being able to live in the moment of your organization, understand the context and, and shift and supplely move your team to fulfill the needs that, that exist for your organization at any given moment. Is that, is that really what you're talking about? Yes, it is. And your point is really important. Um, and so the, the, the conventional understanding of mindfulness is paying attention and, you know, uh, awareness of, you know, whatever is going on, present moment experience. But what we're finding nowadays more and more in the scientific evaluations of which types of mindfulness training are actually effective in helping people be and do well, we are realizing that acceptance of the present moments is much more important than only paying attention or you know, awareness of what's going on. So you're saying, you're calling this almost receptivity or agility, and I'm calling this in my world uh, proactive acceptance. And that's not just acceptance in, uh, you know, from a, you know, you almost want to see it like as improv. So we realize that organizations and teams that are saying yes and, that are basically able to improvise and do almost what the improv comedians do, they perform better, but be, but the it's because the, the stance that underlies an improv comedian's yes and acceptance is the same stance that you say makes a team agile. But it's not based on focusing my attention on the here and now. It's actually the focusing attention on the here and now in many cases actually makes people's experience, especially of stressful situations, bigger. And therefore, um, we now find that mindfulness, when you only understand it as paying attention in the moment, without this active acceptance, actually doesn't have teeth. It's, it's not powerful. It's not effective. But mindfulness as an acceptance of what I find and my willingness to play with it and to be with it and to improvise, that's what is powerful, not only for individuals to manage stress, which we know, but also for teams and organizational leaders to perform and to find solutions in an increasingly complex world. Because that's the currency that we're dealing with. Which makes, actually, when you think about it and you think of some of the other psychological theories and tools that are around total sense, because if we think mm -hmm. about things like WHOOP, um, if we think yeah. about self-regulation, we know self-awareness alone isn't yeah. enough. In fact, it can be in some cases, a problematic thing because you get immersed in the problem rather yep. than rather than and where the problems come from versus trying to be solution focused. So it it makes total sense. You know, you say it, but 
I guess it then leads me the question of, does that mean that people who maybe have less confidence or comfort with changing contexts find it harder to be mindful or it's going to be a bit more challenging for leaders who maybe like a plan and like a structure and then want to go forward and execute because they're not as able to be in the moment? Or is it more about, um, you know, just having skills to be able to do that? Mm -hmm. Um, Really good question. And what comes up for me as I'm listening to your question is something that I think you are also uh, a big expert on, um, values. So I think the the mindfulness story and the reason why, if I'm allowed to say this, I've uh, co-founded a center of excellence in mindfulness research here at City with Trudy Edginton was because we want to help contribute to the next generation of mindfulness trainings, mindfulness interventions, uh, mindfulness programs that help people in all sorts walks of life succeed. And so we're what we're finding here is that Mindfulness, we're we're starting to understand the utility of mindfulness. But if you tell me that um, mindfulness is just, I need to just be present, just be here. I go, and now what do I do? Especially when it's difficult, especially when I'm not naturally comfortable in that situation. And that's where different schools of mindfulness that we're bringing together here at City, and this is why I'm at City University. um, There are schools of mindfulness that focus more or less on, you know, the attention focus bit and that are uh, focusing more, for example, on the values piece. So if I'm paying attention on the here and now, and then I have as a backbone clear in my mind what's important to me, what my values are, then I have a scaffolding against which I can make the right decisions. But Um, If I don't have the scaffolding of knowing what's important, what values are good, and you guys do this so well at uh, at the World of Work Project, you guys help people understand what values are and how to clarify these values in order to make better decisions and in order to to choose what works for both the individual and the organization. So values is really important to help people get through difficult in-the-moment situations. And I I think you make a really good point there. And I think what's really nice about the way you've just described it explains so much uh, that we struggle sometimes to explain to people in leadership positions or indeed people wanting to lead around where the connection is between some of that social bonding and understanding and transparency and relationship and the realities of making decisions and why it matters. So sometimes we find, certainly in our experiences, that we find people in those situations and those positions who tend to be quite um, uh, focused on the future and like looking at, right, where do we want to go to next? Where do we want to go to next? And can you explain to me why it matters so much that I need to build these relationships? Mm-hmm. But actually, by building an understanding of the people around us and the context and people's values and the way they will work and what matters to them, but also what matters to their peers and their team, they're much more able to exist in that present moment and I have an understanding and make decisions about that team. Is that is that what you mean by that? Yes, I do. Um and um, it, uh, what that brings up is um, that uh, here at City, um, so I teach mindfulness and I teach leadership, but I teach both mindfulness and leadership as a team sport. And you and James, when you came in to, to teach for our students, you were so popular. And by the way, you were, and people are still talking about you guys and your presentations, um, because you explained that the way you understand the leadership development that you do is 
you work with individuals and groups almost as a, a peloton. And you ask, you ask my students first of um, what their value sets was before you even taught them about the cool stuff that you do as leadership developers. Um, and so being clear about the values creates community among my students that I still have based on this intervention, this tiny intervention that you've done. And so what does this mean for, you know, I'm, a, I, I'm an analyst of behavior and I'm a theorist in that sense. So that sounds terribly theoretical. Um, and you and I, want, we want to be practical. Practically, what you've just said means that um, we create leadership culture and we, lead, we create solid leadership structures by helping people be pro-social, by helping people to be engaged with each other, each other and to become, you know, have this engaged acceptance that we've talked about just a little while ago. So we, we make people be pro-social and we make people care about each other. And then we realize that the work becomes just a task because all the interpersonal stuff is the buffer and almost the, the fertilizer that makes them manage literally anything. And so investing in people, this is what you guys do at, at the World of Work Project, and this is what I research, is what, probably one of the most strategic things that people can do to manage difficult work challenges later on. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it, when you see, when you take a step back and you can see how it's all, some of, so much of it's connected. Yeah. Um, I guess that leads me on to the question, what, what do you think stops people from doing this? What do you think it is? Is it a lack of understanding that they even need to do this? Or is there, are there yeah. barriers in the way that stops people uh, being able to occupy this place of mindfulness? Yeah, and mindfulness and leadership, right? Because yeah. they're so similar. Because if you say, because the definition that I like the best uh, about leadership is, it's Keith Quint, uh, uh, I think, coined it. He said, leadership is convincing the collective to become collectively responsible for collective problems. I'm not really saying this very well, but it's basically, it's all about me saying to you, you and I have to really care about the geopolitical situation currently here. And because it's collect we're collectively responsible and it's collectively our problem. And that's what leadership is, right? We're shifting and we're improving the world in the way that's beneficial for all of us. Um, so there's two things. You asked me about what stops people from buying into this. And the first thing is um, the narrative currently, and that's actually creating all this contradictory evidence on mindfulness research now that's coming about, is the narrative is I'm independent. I need to worry about myself. I need to enhance myself. I'm alone in this world. Um, I'm going to be looked at alone. I'm evaluated through my social media alone. So the world tells me I'm not interdependent, even though I am, and we all are. But so my, my belief that I'm alone and I have to worry about myself first and foremost stops people to buy into this collective responsibility or collective enabler stuff. Because if we don't believe that other people can help us, why would we invest in other people? So there's a huge body of evidence that says we are much more interdependent than we believe we are and ignoring that really hurts us so not knowing interdependence is a problem the other thing is um, people have 
assumptions about what drives performance. I think it's related. So people assume that um, performance is evaluated individually, and I think that also is pra practices in organizations are simplistically evaluating me on how well I do and you on how well you do rather than us. Um, so if I don't believe that um, my performance will will go up if I start caring about you, start being interested in you, then I will also not buy into uh, mindfulness or leadership as a team sport. But these are assumptions. And these assumptions are based on a, on a Cartesian culture that's valuing individual action perhaps more than reality. Reality is not based on indiv independent action. It, it's, always, it's always really hard for me mm -hmm. to uh, hear, hear things like that and not get dragged into a conversation about individualism. Um, just because when you, when you frame it like that, it is, it is much clearer to understand why the way that we research psychology, for example, mm -hmm. becomes quite almost problematic because we've got, we're trying to hold all other things. We're basically arguing, if you hold all these things equal, this will happen. And you're like, well, you can't. That's mm -hmm. that's literally, the independence is such in the way that we live as humans, it's impossible to mm -hmm. do so. So effectively, you're starting from a, a, the wrong the wrong place, I guess. And I guess the other thing that strikes me about all of this is this, this I mean, actually, when you think about it, it's relatively um, misguided. Let's go with misguided. The idea that we measure people's performance individually uh, and don't count or look at their performance within their team. Now, I know some people do, but largely, you know, most of, most of the people I work with, you know, they very proudly show me their performance management processes. And it's like, this person did this. And I'm like, and what did they do in the team? And they're like, oh, we don't look at that. And you're like, well, so if you're not measuring and they're like, well, you can't measure what someone brings to the team. And I'm like, well, no. you can. Firstly, you can. Secondly, just because you can't measure it doesn't mean it's not important. Um, that just means we haven't figured a way to measure it. And I find it fascinating because I'm like, well, if you don't tell people that's what matters, why or how do you think you can expect them to play a truly integrated role in your team? Now, I realize that sounds really obvious when you say it out loud. And yet, I definitely don't see that in the workplace. Do you, I mean, is that, is that fair? Do you, how do we, how do we go changing that? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's completely fair and it's completely in line with how we really understand how people work. How, like the the social context, uh, and this is this goes back to Kurt Lewin, you know, the, the godfather of modern psychology. Oh, we all um, love Kurt Lewin. Yeah, you do too, right? Absolutely. Totally. And so Kurt Lewin said, every behavior is a function of the person and the situation. And we now know more and more that the, the social context the, the, the interpersonal and actually not social, actually interpersonal, much more, because I don't really care about the room that you're in. You know, you don't really care about the physical location I'm in, but the relationship that you and I have affects my motivation. It affects my attitude and effect, affects my behavior much more than my skill, my smarts, um, even my physical energy level. And that's a reality. But our world doesn't reflect that because the world and even performance management systems that are simple just look at the individual because they see the individual they don't the problem is that we don't see the emotional climate we don't see the relational energy 
between you and me. But boy, do I feel it. Do I know that it's here, Jane? You know, I know exactly what energy I get out of speaking with you. It's it's not impossible to measure. I understand the microculture that we've created. It's not impossible to measure, but it's harder to measure than looking at you and measuring your height and, you know, things like that. I'm in danger of going off on a tangent, which, as you know, is James and I's favourite thing, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. How much... How much do you think our obsession with numbers and the kind of numericalization of human, humans is, is part of the problem? And the reason I'm asking that is that anything, and it, it kind of comes from our conversation about what can be measured and can't be measured or what, yeah. what people are confident measuring, I think, which is more mm -hmm. accurate. Mm -hmm. I mean, the number of times people have said to me, I've, I, you know, the number of times I've been doing consultancy and I'd like, I'd, I've said I'd like to talk to each of your team, how are you going to measure what their responses are? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'll have heard them, and that's still data. It, it's not. It's not that analytical tool of of measuring that data, mm -hmm. but I'm still a human being who can interpret what it says and use my expertise to understand it. And I guess I I, I feel like the world is obsessed, particularly the working world and the world of work performance, is obsessed with numerical measurement. So even when we think about like. I mean, the idea that you can grade someone's entire annual performance on a number of one to five with no nuance <laughs> feels, I mean, it's, I mean, it would work, I think, maybe if I was a line worker, maybe in a factory and I had one single job and I yeah. wasn't allowed to do any other job, maybe. Even then, I think maybe. I would still struggle. That, right. Yeah, exactly. That even, even like uh, processing plants or, or call center, and oh, call center, that's much more sophisticated, but even like, you know, uh, Apple packaging products, uh, there's all sorts of social dynamics that make people actually either perform or sabotage their own performance if they don't feel that they're seen or heard or if they, you know, if they feel so frustrated. This is the thing that makes us human because because we have language and we have imagination. We do things not based on rational, you know, impulse and response. We do things because we disagree and because we want to get our honor back, even if it costs us ourselves, right? So even in the simplest job, this performance evaluation that you talk about is rubbish. Coming back to the topic of performance measurement, um, the, the most successful paper I've ever co-authored, uh, co-authored almost 10 years ago, and I, I've been one of the very junior members of the team, um, and most highly cited, is a paper where we asked senior HR directors, what the future of performance measurement is. And we conclusively found that in an area of uncertainty, does that ring any bells, right? Most organizations operate in an area of uncertainty nowadays, not when we, when we wrote this paper in 2013. When you operate in an uncertainty or interdependence of your actions with competitors, you know, the, the social climate, etc., it is absolutely nonsensical to focus on numerical measurements because when you're not completely clear about the long-term outcomes that you actually are pursuing, focusing on numerical measurements is like having apples and pears that just really don't jive together. So then getting fixated on you know, 50 or 70 or 80% when actually you need to qualitatively you know, like uh, you need to define with words, with imagination, what your performance management goal is. You cannot have your performance measurements not be qualitative or negotiated 
they have to be negotiated and agreed when the world in which you work is is uncertain and interdependent and complex that's so you you are your tangent this is not a tangent this is the core of understanding leadership and this is the core of understanding mindfulness in organizations right okay so let's let's think about some of the practicalities we're going to have people listening and they're like oh this this sounds familiar and like <laughs> i should understand this well when you i guess firstly are there organizations that do this well or have you have you come across them and if so what does that look like what are the what are the things they're doing in the moment and outside of the moment so planning and and stuff like that and development that allows them to create a i, I guess foster an environment of mindful lead, mindfulness in their leadership and in their teams yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the, the literature, and this is solid scientific literature, this is absolutely you know valid and reliable because scientific means nothing more than it's valid. You know, we know it's because of that and it's reliable. That means it doesn't just happen on Tuesday. Um, and so this is the, the literature on high reliability organizations. It's 30 years old and it talks about how collective mindfulness, collective care and curiosity and attention and a commitment to managing difficulty collectively and anticipating and responding to un, you know unexpected problems as a collective unit um, that's the literature that says performance happens reliably in in those organizations these tend to be organizations where errors or problems result in loss of a limb or loss of life so this literature started to come about when people looked at nuclear power plants when people looked at intensive care units when people looked at um, air traffic control centers, where if one person makes a mistake, 150 or 300 people die. But the really interesting thing for normal business now, because normal business is becoming more uh, complex and difficult to even avoid problems that could really cost you dearly. Um, so the things that normal organizations should learn is that these organizations put slack into their resourcing. These organizations put a collective spin on, onto their performance management. And so if it, an air traffic control center, for example, does this really well, you bet it does it really well by training and by rewarding people, not just to look out for their own performance, but to look to their left and to look to their right and notice, this is where mindfulness comes in, right? Notice when the person sitting next to them and having the computers in front of them is starting to sweat a little bit. And it's starting to maybe swear a little bit because they're starting to not manage the, the airplanes that they have to you know, get to land or whatever air traffic control center people do. And so people are trained to pay attention not only to their own needs, but also to the needs of others. And that's when performance becomes reliable. And that's when individuals know they're not alone. And individuals have each other's back, literally. And I've been studying defense for six, seven years, and I've been working in defense and on mindfulness issues, but not from an individual relaxation perspective or turning somebody into a better killing machine that you know is, is better at being in the moment and, and shooting more sharply, but by having teams really pay attention to how the team responds to under to unexpected pressures. And so those organizations which where the stakes are high and where the cost of not paying attention to managing things in this strategic, proactive, almost like pro-social, like pro-human kind of way, 
they they invest resources into having teams, you know, to develop each other and teams that really um, look out for each other. Ordinary organizations have too short time horizons to invest in this because ultimately this is about changing culture. This is what we're talking about. So we, we have to use the C word here. The C word is culture drives everything you do. And culture is the things we do, the, the way we do things around here. And if we're not willing to change the way we do things around here, none of the training that you that you deliver so brilliantly and that I research uh, uh, and spend a lot of time researching will have any effect. So obviously, I love everything you've just said because that backs up my worldview of how how yeah. the world exists. But I want to I want to ask you a slightly um, look coming at it from a different angle. Um, yeah, poke at me. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've observed with zero academic rigor okay. in my, the organisations I work with is that there is less attention paid to clearly defining what good looks like, either mm -hmm. for a product, a service, a behavior, a role sometimes. Like, what does this role yeah. actually look like in detail and what does good look like if they do it well? Yeah. Um, and I, I, th there, is, there is a less meticulous attention to detail than perhaps I experienced in some of the organizations I worked with 10, 15 years ago, right? Now, it may, it, that absolutely may just be the organizations I'm working with. And they're definitely more creative and they're culturally stronger and things like that. But there's, there's more, less meticulousness. And one of the things that just makes me question is, alongside what you've just described in that high pressure environment and that, that high reliability, the need for high reliability, I also feel like there is an understanding, you're describing that each member of staff understands what good looks like and what good doesn't look like so that they can be mindful of it and have that information does that do you do you get a sense or mm -hmm. is that something that you need in order to be mindful of the environment your team's in do you need to understand that or is it actually um largely something that sits outside mm -hmm. of what the leaders need mm -hmm. um brilliant question and i've got something that i know um, uh, plays to your to your strength and your expertise that you and I ha have to talk about again today. I actually so your question is, do we need to know what good looks like in order to perform well in today's world? And my answer is a, a resounding no. The thing that we need to do and the thing that we need to have is psychological safety. You and I know this that actual psychological safety that means me. Uh, trusting that you won't bite my head off when I present you with a half-baked idea and you trusting that I'm not hogging the screen space and I'm going to give you airtime air here as well. So we are giving and taking. We are safe to share. We're safe to criticize. We're safe to, you know, to have a debate because interpersonally, we're cool. That is the biggest predictor of performance in the 21st century, much bigger than even being clear about uh, what the goal is, having roles and responsibilities distributed, even knowing what impact we're going to have. And we know this based on a project Aristotle that Google did, where they crunched the numbers and checked what makes teams effective in the 21st century. And knowing what good looks like, that means being clear about the goal, that means being clear about your impact, that means having um, 
clarified roles and responsibilities didn't come anywhere near as high as teams that are psychologically safe. Okay, so obviously we've got people listening and they're like, okay, this makes sense. I want to explore it more in my team. Hopefully. Um, but what can they be doing? So if you've got people in leadership teams and they're like, okay, my organization is definitely not quite at the stage where they fully get this yet and we're not embracing it. What first steps would you mm -hmm. encourage people to uh, to take to kind of start thinking about how they might bring it more into their themselves and their teams? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think you guys do this and I, I remember uh, you coming in uh, to us. Um, this, cannot, this cannot happen from the bottom. This has to happen from the leadership team because organizations and teams watch the actions of the leaders even if the leaders say they're welcoming people to be more pro-social or more friendly whatever it's what the leadership or the, the you know the leader of the pack does so people people watch the leaders actions not what they don't listen to what they say and so leaders need to start being a bit more vulnerable they need to do a vulnerability lead you guys talk about this too don't you and pe people need to leaders need to invite more questions, need to invite more two-way communications. Leaders need to show a bit of themselves as human beings, especially in a virtual world now, especially in a blended world, where everything is more formal. So leaders need to show a bit of skin, show a bit of vulnerability, welcome questions, praise people for, for bringing bad news and criticism, and have the strength and the the backbone to be bigger than just to, you know, to, to be, to become defensive in this. So asking real questions, listening for the real answers to your questions and saying, I don't know how to do this is all stuff that promotes a culture of pro-sociality and psychological safety. It's effectively like taming wild animals to trust you, right? Brilliant. And in terms of this idea of being more, I guess, this flock of birds idea, which I love, by the way, I love this idea of thinking of a, a team like any of the teams I work with as a flock of birds. What, if you were going to, if you were actually going to try and introduce that concept and get people talking and thinking about that, is there, is there anything you would recommend they do? Is there anything they should listen to or look at or read? to understand a little bit more about this idea of this interdependency between their team and to be able to sort of flex and move and act as, act as a flock, if you like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, can I just say that I've recently uh, co-authored a paper on how to make psychological safety happen in virtual teams? It's really a practical, it's a short paper where we've just chewed through what are the practical things people can do to promote psychological safety in a virtual environment one thing that people can do mm -hmm. okay that's brilliant well we're almost running out of time before we do any final thoughts that you would like to uh, share on the topic of mindfulness team mindfulness leadership what do i wish that people knew ah yes right uh i think my my biggest wish um for people is that they i wish people knew that the potential of mindfulness is much bigger than stress relief or individual self-enhancement. And it is actually, its original aspiration is to heal suffering. That sounds a bit esoteric, but actually to help 
improve us, deal with an increasingly complex world um, in the world at large, not in our intra-psychic, not in our inner world. So it's actually an outside world thing. So, and that means action. That doesn't mean relaxation. That's what I wish people knew. Well, I think that's a really good place to uh, draw this conversation to a close, although I could probably go on for ages. Um, Final thing, um, if people are interested in your work or if they want to read more about what you do, where's where's the best place for them to go? Um, uh, I'm at City University. I have a, a you know an academic page. If anybody wants to read my research papers and the chapters I wrote, I will chew their ears off about it, and I'd be so delighted. So there's lots of stuff written. There's lots of stuff on LinkedIn. There's lots of YouTube videos as well that people could watch. But they can find me on LinkedIn, of course. I'd be delighted to hear from people. Brilliant. Well, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you for sparing us the time. We really enjoyed the chat and. That's all from me. So it's a goodbye from me. Thank you so much, Jane. What a joy to spend time with you. Hi, it's Jane. I just want to say thanks for listening to the whole episode. If you enjoyed it, if you have a question or if you just want to say hi, you can find us on Twitter at worldofwork underscore IO. Don't forget, you can also find out more about what we do, including our online seminars, workshops and development programs on www.worldofwork.io. 